This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamaliti. You know, I didn't grow up hunting with with my dad and family like a lot of people do. I grew up on a horse farm. I started hanging out with a family friend that was a hunter, and he took me turkey hunting for the first time when I was, I think, 18. I was already in culinary school. I'd been working in restaurants since I was 13, and I just thought turkeys were farmed. I didn't know there were wild turkeys. I had grown up eating turkey at Christmas and Thanksgiving, and to me, it was just so different in flavor and texture and appearance. This crap in the grocery stores and turkey, you know, this is what turkey is supposed to taste like. Really, that was the moment for me that I decided that I really wanted to try and work more wild food into my diet. That's restaurateur and wild game hunter chef Michael Hunter. He's here to share the latest on Antler Kitchen and Bar and tell us about his new cookbook, The Hunter Chef. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, Mary, thanks for having me. So I'm going to get right to it and we're going to jump in and start at where does your love of food come from? Um, That's a funny one. You know, I don't really know. I remember as a kid, uh, I just always loved food and I was always um, just very hungry. So I was was always wanting like seconds and thirds at dinner. And I was like this really tall, lanky, scrawny kid. Um, So it was just kind of funny that I, you know, I had this just insatiable appetite um, Mm -hmm. and it didn't show like, you know, I I was just, I couldn't gain weight to, you know, save my life. So um, yeah, it just, I don't know where it came from. You know, I was always with uh, my mom at, you know, parties and family functions and stuff. And I was just always into weird things for a kid. Like I'd be into, you know, like a a cold uh, octopus, like seafood platter and just weird things, you know, for a kid that was mm-hmm. you know, eight or nine or something. So it's um, really, I just, I've always loved foods from an early age. Okay. So then how did you get started in the kitchen cooking? That too was uh, almost a bit of a fluke. I was living in a small town, rural, rural kind of town uh, in Caledon. And um, I wanted a, a summer job and I rode my bike a couple kilometers down the road, up and down some hills to um, uh, a gas station. And I, I applied to pump gas and there was a little diner uh, also that the owner owned and yeah, you know, said he didn't want any help uh, at the gas station, but he needed help in the kitchen and, and could I cook? So uh, I started out, you know, in in the in the dish pit, and on the weekends when it was, they used to have lineups outside the door. It was this little greasy spoon diner, but it was really good. And um, so I would uh, I would help them, you know, buttering toast and deep frying, you know, hash browns and stuff like that. And that was my sort of intro. And then they slowly started, you know, training me to cook eggs and pancakes and some of the other kind of you know, breakfast items and omelets and things like that. And um, it was just uh, a summer job. And I just kept it up through through high school. And then from there, I, I started to actually enjoy what I was doing. And it was just kind of fun and exciting. And I from there, I went to a, a local golf course. Um, and then in the off seasons of the golf course, I wanted a job. And I wound up working at more of like a fine dining kind of country inn. That's really where I started to fall in love with food and really take an interest in, you know, organic and vegetable farming. The chef and I would go foraging on our break because it was in the country. And it was, um, it was really, you know, at this local country in that um, really started developing my, my career. And when did the idea to open Antler Kitchen and Bar come? 
My business partner, um, Jody Shapiro, and I were actually uh, working on the cookbook first. And we we wanted to start taking some food photography, you know, shoots with our friends and family and have a more sort of party atmosphere for some of the um, book photos. And uh, that sort of rolled into a, a small dinner series where we would sell tickets. And then we started getting some press around that. The Toronto Star did a big article on these, these wild dinners we were doing. And I was working for a large restaurant group and they were a bit shy about it. They said, you know, whatever you do in your, your days off is your business, but you know, we don't want to be mentioned in these articles where you're serving wild game uh, and talking about hunting and because they sort of uh, foreshadowed what happened in 2018. So they said they didn't want PETA protesting the, any of their restaurants. So, and so it was really that that really inspired us to open our own restaurant because we were, we were getting this press and the company I worked for didn't want anything to do with it. And it, this press we were, you know, generating didn't have a home. Um, so we decided we were going to open our, our own concept. And, and you know, we, we thought at the time it would be a great place to uh, work on our book and, you know, have all these projects coming out of. And um, actually the reality when you open a restaurant is you don't have time for anything else. So uh, the book was per, per, put on the back burner and, and running the restaurant was, uh, you know, the main priority for a number of years. Are you up for a couple of games? Sure. Okay. We're going to start with this or that. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. While cooking, do you listen to music or do you prefer silence? Mm, these days, I think it's silence. No. It used to be music, but I think, I don't know why. <laughs> just, I would have pegged you for music. Oh, I'm already wrong. First one. I like to hear things like the pan sizzle and I can, I'm just more in tune with what's okay. going on when I'm cooking okay, and I smell think of that. too. Like I can, I can like, like, oh, I should check this thing in the oven because I can smell it. Morning person or night owl? I have to force myself to be, I'm more of a night owl, but the hunting and everything that I do in my life forces me to get up at, you know, three, four in the morning sometimes. So, but I, I prefer staying up late. And baked or fried? Uh, I'm going to go with baked, although they're gluttony side of me saying fried. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then maybe this one's easier. Super salad. Uh, see, that's, it depends on the season. In winter, I'm going to say soup, but in the summer, I'm going to say salad. <laughs> Sweet or salty? Definitely, I have a sweet tooth, for sure. Toothpaste, squeeze from the middle or the bottom? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> so guaranteed, you're a middle. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. I'd squeeze from the top. I'm like the worst guy. Uh, read a book or watch TV? You know, I want to say read a book, but I definitely watch more TV. TV. Toilet paper, <laughs> over or under? There is only over. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I know people that will change the role in other people's homes if it's under. <laughs> That's me. I'm those people. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the book was the start of all this. So how long have you been working on the book? Well, I got the idea about 10 years ago. I was working at Scarpetta for Scott Conant, um, who's a, a chef out of New York. And he gave me his book and, and that was really what inspired me. You know, I, I liked Scott, I think other than, you know, being this big famous guy, he was mm -hmm. pretty down to earth and, and I could relate to him. And I thought, you know, if this, if this guy can do a book, you know, what's stopping me. And, and, um, I was really at that time taking a huge turn to hunting and foraging, um, just for myself and my own diet. Um, 
And the more people I spoke to about it really were interested in what I was doing and either wanted me to take them or teach them or, you know, share my resources with them about how to learn about mushrooms and, and things mm. like that. So I just decided this would be a good, a good book for me to write and sort of, you know, help and inspire other people. What do you want people to take away or to learn from your cookbook? I think really just to look around them and see, you know, a lot of the things in the cookbook, they're, they're from the city or they're from Ontario, but they're, you know, they translate to really anywhere in Canada and a lot of the United States. So for me, if people can just start recognizing what's edible and wild around them, you know, that's a win for me. Um, you know, if people try any of the recipes with game and they, they've never cooked with game, you know, that would be huge for me. It really inspires me to, you know, teach people, you know, a little bit more about where their food comes from. Um, and if, you know, people gain a little bit more respect for, for animals or for hunting or for fishing or for where their food comes from, you know, that, that's really just what inspired me to write the book. So give us a little forage 101. What are some of your favorite forage items and where can people go hunting for them? It's a lot easier than you think. Um, mushrooms are, are a great one. Even if just to start identifying them, you don't necessarily have to start eating them right away. Um, you know, there are some dangers with uh, with mushroom foraging. Um, but, you know, some of the ones that are, are really easy and, and aren't mushrooms are uh, sumac. Um, staghorn sumac is a good one. Um, it has a real lemony flavor and you can actually... Um, make a you know lemonade type drink with it it's a great uh, uh spice for fish where you get that lemony flavor but if you actually marinate the fish with it uh, there's no acid in it so it doesn't cook the fish so you could actually marinate it in sumac overnight you know wild herbs um along creeks uh and rivers um you know all over northern ontario there's watercress and, and mint um those are real you know easy ones to start with and and really safe and then there's, you know, going back to the mushrooms, there's easy to identify ones that don't have any, you know, poisonous things that look look like it. Pheasant back mushrooms are really interesting. The technical name for them are dryad saddle, but they actually look like the feathers of a of a pheasant on their back. And that doesn't have any poisonous lookalikes. They're kind of fun. They they grow everywhere in the spring. I've seen them, you know, in Toronto growing on trees on people's front lawns and things like that. So it's it's a real interesting, fun one. They're very common. Um, there's one called a shaggy mane mushroom. They're like a, a golf course mushroom, I call them, because they just grow in, in green grass. Um, and they're sporadic. They'll be, you know, I did a catering cooking event in someone's yard uh, in Toronto, and they had a whole patch of, of shaggy mane mushrooms growing in their backyard, and we picked those and put them in the meal, and they thought that was uh, No really way. So it's really just... Uh, learning to identify things and then you'll start seeing them when you're walking around if you're walking your dog or if you like to hike so um you know i have lots of friends that go foraging on the humber river and things like that but um i know with city parks there are there are laws about you know removing things from the parks so you know you want to check the bylaws of where you are private property is really the best place to start looking or just sort of check some bylaws and stuff about you know removing things from a park so what was the draw to hunting for you the dry hunting was really just the flavor of the meat. Mm -hmm. um, the first, you know, I didn't grow up hunting with, with my dad and family like a lot of people do. I grew up on a horse farm and um, I started hanging out with a family friend that uh, was a hunter and he took me turkey hunting for the first time when I was, I think, 18. And I was already in, you know, culinary school. I had been working in restaurants since I was 13. And I just thought turkeys were farmed. I didn't know there was a wild, you know, 
I didn't know there were wild turkeys. I thought it was like chicken. It was a, mm-hmm. a cap- captivity, you know, bred thing. Um, You're not so, alone on that one. So did I at the time. <laughs> Way yeah. Back. yeah. So, um, and you know, still to this day, the the hunt he took me on was probably one of the best turkey hunts I've ever I've ever experienced. They can be really smart, uh, elusive birds. So it was it was I think nine turkeys came out um, into the field, and uh, we harvested two birds. And it was really the flavor of the meat that was like the light bulb moment for me because I had grown up eating turkey at Christmas and Thanksgiving and you know special occasions. So I really had there was really a, a clear comparison to you know farm turkey and wild turkey. And to me, you know, it was just so different in flavor and texture and and appearance. And it was at that time I had seen the documentary Food Inc. And I was really sort of tuned into factory farming and, you know, growth hormones and antibiotics, you know, in animals feed. And I just thought, you know, this crap in the grocery store isn't turkey. You know, this is what turkey is supposed to taste like. So um, really, that was the, the moment for me that I decided that I really wanted to try and work more wild food into my diet. Now, for people that have never tried game meats, how would you describe the taste of of turkey it's really unique there's there's it's and it's it's difficult to describe because you know it's it's all based on the animal's diet so you know even deer can taste different depending on where they where they are um it's and it's really just all diet based oh that i did not know yeah so mushrooms are a really great example um you know morel mushrooms are one of my favorites to to forage for and it's they really just taste like the forest when you eat them it's like they're just very earthy there's um you know there's a delicate flavor to it but there's also a an an earthiness that is you know really profound so legally we have to serve farm raised meat even though they're wild game breeds they still have to be farmed uh, in captivity and sent to a slaughterhouse to to be processed so even the farmed game, it's a bit milder than the true, you know, wild game. And um, as, as a hunter, I can make that comparison. But for people that are trying game for the first time, it's, it's actually a really nice sort of introduction because the meat is not as funky. The one thing I can compare it to is lamb. So lamb's kind of got a bit of a funkiness to it. And, the, you know, the older a lamb gets, you know, if you start eating mutton, it's really... Um, that lamb funkiness is a lot more profound and it's a lot stronger. When you say funkiness, do you taste, for me, it's like when I taste a hint of like a metallic finish to it. Yeah. So the thing with lamb, like if you eat um, a rack of lamb and it's, it's, you know, medium rare or, or medium, it doesn't come through as much, but when you cook lamb well done, it has, it really brings out the oils or that profound, you know, metallic irony sort of funk unless you braise it. And I find when you're braising lamb and, and game meats, that longer stewed flavor really helps mellow out the the gaminess or the sort of funk of the lamb. Yeah. I mean, for me, if you're a foodie, I highly recommend trying game meats. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's kind of like if, if we were in the wild ourselves, you know, what would we be eating? Uh, and we live in Canada and you know, what's around us, there's deer, there's Turkey, there's duck, there's geese, there's rabbit, you know, all these things are mm-hmm. what we, we would be eating. So that that's also something that inspires me is, is what is around us. I think for people that eat meat, I think everyone needs to experience that because, you know, I think as, as a whole, we've become out of touch of where our food comes from and it doesn't come from a little uh, styrofoam package at the grocery store. It's a living, breathing animal and it needs to be respected. And I think, I think people would eat a lot more meat if they were, you know, once in their life had to actually kill a chicken and pluck it. 
You know, I don't, I don't think uh, people would would waste as much. I don't think we'd eat as much. I think you know we need to be a little more conscious of what we're what we're doing. Recipe go to. Which is your recipe go to? I really love uh, braised, you know, slow roasted things, shanks and neck, and you know, with these weird cut shoulder that people don't usually like. Growing up working in restaurants, it's all about the primal cuts and steaks and ribeyes and tenderloins and things like that, uh, which are great. Um, just for me, they're not as interesting anymore. I've I've cooked I don't know ten thousand tenderloins into my life. For me, there's no there's not as much flavor as you know a lamb neck or something that's slow roasted or braised. Like there's just no comparison. Things like lamb tagine and those types of dishes, I love. They're just so much depth of flavor and texture and and you know spice and things like that. I really just love what's in season. And if we have some friends that uh, are indigenous and they're, you know, from the north and they bring us some Arctic char, like that just blows my mind, you know, that day. If I go hunting and shoot a turkey, like that's my, my favorite thing of that day. It's really just, you know, seasonal. I love that since someone gives me tomatoes from their backyard. Like it's just amazing. I'm Mary Mamaliti and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Michael Hunter, He's a chef, a restaurateur, and author of the cookbook, The Hunter Chef. I'm going to take us back to 2018. Did it ever cross your mind that when you were thinking of opening up Antler, that it would become the site of multiple animal rights protests? I mean, I'm going to be honest, and I think I mentioned this earlier when we spoke, that I didn't fully understand why they chose Antler. There are many restaurants that serve food in the city, uh, serve meat in the city. Why antler? (laughs) Um, It all started with uh, our chalkboard sign. So one of our staff wrote, venison is the new kale on our (laughs) chalkboard sign. And, um, you know, we would, uh, we would always kind of try and write, you know, fun, fun things. And we had little, um, you know, little back and forth with our neighboring restaurants on our sign uh, where we'd sort of poke fun at one another. And, and we were just trying to be cute on our sign. And an activist, uh, a woman that participates and organizes animal rights protests at slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants and stuff like that, rode by on her bicycle and, you know, took offense to this sign. You know, they, I guess, looked up our name. You know, I'm a hunter. So it just seemed like, you know, we were this big, easy target. And we were actually tipped off by a security company that monitored these folks and said, hey, you know, there's this post on Facebook. They're going to be targeting a restaurant on this day. So we actually knew they were coming. And we, we were just as surprised and baffled as everybody else. But, you know, why us? They protested us once a week for 11 months. It was, it was excruciating. You know, I, it was something that I had considered from working at the previous restaurant and they had mentioned, you know, hunting and animal rights, you know, activism and things like that. So it was something that I, you know, it was always in the back of my mind that could happen, but I never thought it would happen for as long as it did. And, and just, you know, the global scale that the, the news went viral, uh, you know, you can't predict those things or ever in a million years think it's going to happen to you. Mm. Um, especially when there's a, there's a butcher shop across the street. So it it was really just totally bizarre. You know, it wasn't fair. They singled us out. And I think when you try and, you know, force others to conform to your beliefs and what they were doing, wasn't inspiring anyone just the way that they did it. Um, so I think that, that that's really why we had the support that we did. I'm sorry I had to go through that. But I want you to share, and, and what are some common myths about hunting? 
Well, um, uh, one thing that people don't know is that trophy hunting is actually illegal in Canada and the United States. So you can't just kill an animal to cut its head off and put it on your wall. And it's actually a very serious uh, offense. So everything that's hunted, you have to use that animal. So, you know, 99.9% of hunters are uh, extremely ethical, extremely moral, and take a lot of pride in what they do. And, you know, people do it for food and it's hard and they're cute and you know they're beautiful creatures right and all animals they're, they're really beautiful and it's, it was difficult for me the first time I shot a deer because I could I was bow hunting and I could see the steam the steam coming out of the nostrils and they're just these big beautiful majestic creatures and it's emotional um, but at the end of the day I just it's what I believe in and it's I think it's a healthier alternative for my family and I don't buy meat from the store hardly ever mm-hmm. really just an alternative way to provide for your family the thing that's really hard for people to understand is that hunting actually pays for conservation you know wetland projects or forestry projects and things like that as hunters all the organizations that you know we belong to and that our licenses are that we legally have to have to hunt those dollars the government collects actually goes back into the conservation of of habitat and the actual animals themselves um and, and you know that the killing is for fun it, it's not for fun it's actually you know really difficult but it's really just the connection with your food the connection with your friends and family you know i bring my family my wife and my kids out out, out into the the forest and fields and lakes with me um and we take part as a family and that's that's a real Uh, bonding experience for us and we all learn where our food comes from so there's a lot more to it than just what people think and it's not for everyone but to understand and to educate ourselves as to why things happen how they do or how how things operate and what you are consuming that's important Mm -hmm. exactly and that's where you know the vegan thing was really bizarre because i don't really support animals going to a slaughterhouse either but that's the way our system is set up you know and that's the way that's what the government tells us to do animals that are farmed they have to go to a slaughterhouse and these animals are you know legally raised in captivity um when you talk about chickens or raising ducks legally the government in canada makes you raise them indoors um uh, i know a couple years ago the avian flu was a big um, threat. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm friends with our, our, our duck farm um, family. And uh, they said, oh, these used to be where our outdoor duck pasture was. And I said, well, how come you, you, they're not raised outdoors anymore? They said, well, the government classified um, uh, ducks as poultry, which is chicken, and are susceptible to the uh, avian flu and forced us to uh, close our outdoor duck pasture. And I thought, like, this is this is crazy. And he said, ducks don't even. There's no there's no scientific evidence that ducks can even contract the avian flu or transmit it to the wild animals. So it was just, you know, the lives that these animals have. Um, you know, if you care about animal rights, killing an animal in the wild, it's living its life the way it's supposed to. It's happy and it's free, versus an animal that's raised in captivity and has to go through a slaughterhouse and transport to the slaughterhouse and all that kind of stuff. So you know, the suffering that that animal has from hunting is far less than farmed animals. The other thing is, is animals in the wild, um, I would say 99% of the time don't die peacefully of old age. They're dying from other animals eating them while they're alive. And that's, that's extremely, uh, you know, horrible to think about, but it's nature and um, it is awful. And we come across it while we're hunting um, at times, there'll be a whole skeleton of a whole deer. 
and it's, and it's okay. Well, that thing was chased down by a pack of wolves and eaten alive. So, you know, I think being shot by a hunter with a high-powered rifle is a lot uh, more humane than what uh, they're up against in the wild. So that's where I think that the the disconnect between, you know, some animal rights people versus meat eaters, I think protesting my restaurant is not inspiring anybody. You know, if you were to go protest the government for reform on slaughterhouses, you know, I would get behind that. I would support you. You know, when we were open, we've always had a vegan dish on the menu. Uh, we welcome everyone into our, you know, our restaurant that we call our home. Um, you know, whether it's uh, kosher or halal or pescatarianism, whatever it is, your diet is, you're welcome to come. So really, it was um, it was hurtful for us what they were doing and saying online. Um, so it was difficult. Can you share what was that breaking point for you? Um, I think it was it was after about three months. I, I would always leave. So when there it was Wednesdays, they were coming Wednesdays for some reason. So I'd work in the day and I knew that we always knew when they were coming because of their Facebook groups. So I would leave because I knew it was so um, distressful for me to, you know, think about and even deal with. I just left because I knew I would do something stupid. I was so angry and I forget why, but, you know, sous chef was off or something and it was like, okay, I had to be there. And for the first time I really saw um, customers coming in like visibly upset from what these people were doing to them outside. This woman came in, she was almost in tears and she was being screamed at with a megaphone on the sidewalk. We'd always have to call the police to be there so they would keep the peace and, and abide by the law because when they weren't there, they were just complete jerks. For me, seeing that customer coming in visibly upset, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I thought, you know what? They're offending our guests and offending us from outside. I'm going to do everything I can from inside and, and offend them back. So um, I took the back leg off a deer. I got some cutting boards and, you know, all the uh, health inspection safety stuff I would have to, you know, butcher meat with inside my kitchen mm -hmm. um, and took it to the front window and, and set up a little table there um, and and started butchering the deer leg in front of them. And that was my sort of F, F you back to them. So they filmed it all and they were live streaming it to vegan websites and people were recording and, and, um, and that's, that's the video that, that went viral. So, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we were getting absolutely hammered online from vegan websites from all over the world. We were getting people in Australia no. giving us um, one-star reviews on our Yelp and Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, our online ratings on Google were like, you know, one. And like, it was just awful. And we thought, I thought I'd screwed us. And <laughs> uh, we were like, well, you know, it's been a good ride for two or three years. You know, <laughs> we're done. And, you know, I thought we were going to be canceled. Um, and then when the mainstream media picked it up, uh, you know, that's when the support started pouring in from, you know, the regular normal people of the world. There were articles all over the world that were being sent to us. Um, they were, you know, in Russian from England, from South Africa. Wow. Um, Singapore, Australia, like these news articles from around the world. It was it was just bizarre. That video from the window, um, I think it has at the time had 25 million views on the Daily Mail uh, website. It was just you know, something you would never uh, in a million years expect to happen to you. Okay, we're going to go on to rapid fire. Favorite ingredient to cook with? Uh, probably salt. You've got five minutes to move into a new kitchen and you can only take one item with you. What would it be and why? Um, I think a knife. You know, you're always going to get a knife. Curse words you use in the kitchen. Can't repeat them. <laughs> Every swear word under the sun. <laughs> really, the F word is the most used one in the kitchen, I would think. 
Uh, definitely, definitely. Definitely when I burn myself or stab <laughs> myself, it's that one is, you know, the F word comes out first, I think. All right. You have time to yourself. No interruptions. What do you do? Um, I'd probably go hunting or foraging or, you know, find something to do outside. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I think it would be I could eat as a gluttonous pig and not have to worry about gaining weight. <laughs> it could still be healthy and be a glutton. That would be it. What you're the first person to say that superpower. What what is your junk food kryptonite? Um I definitely love chocolate and whether it's, you know, fancy dark chocolate or um mini eggs yeah, chocolate yeah mini, yeah whatever it is i like i purposely don't buy chocolate unless it's like the the high cocoa stuff because i'll just eat it all yeah so yeah i, I don't i try not to buy junk but if you know christmas rolls around and people give us like frere rochers or mm-hmm. um, things like that like i just destroy them <laughs> so if your fridge could talk what would be the one word it would use to describe your food choices uh wild there's funky stuff in my fridge. Yeah. Justin Timberlake brought sexy back. What would you bring back? Wild food, I guess. <laughs> I, I ask every one of my guests to share their own kitchen confession. Do you have one for us? Well, there's just, there's really too many. Okay. <laughs> uh, my first one, and it's probably the funniest, grossest story um, I can think of is when I worked at this, this little roadside diner that I grew up working at. My first horror story in the kitchen was somebody, uh, somebody ordered pancakes. And I think it was like one of my first shifts alone. I had no idea how to make pancakes. And the, one of the waitresses came back and said, okay, there's a bag of, uh, she had, you know, worked there a long time. So there's a bag of pancake mix over there. She kind of like talked to me through it and she's like, okay, mix it with water, whisk it together in a bowl. And like, it was like, I don't know, I was probably 14 at the time. And, um, and I had, you know, knew how to work the griddle and cook eggs and some omelets and stuff like that. And I, you know, made these pancakes that were gigantic, these huge door stopper things <laughs> and they were chunky and they were just awful. And then uh, the lady sent it back and there had been a fly in the pancake no. bag mix. And there was a fly baked into her pancake. <laughs> it was just mortified. Absolutely mortified. So yeah, that, that's one of the good ones. See, we got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was another interesting one recently, actually. There was a, there was a bullet found in someone's steak. So we're doing these steak uh, meat kits. And no. they sent me a picture of this copper piece of metal that was like embedded in one of their steaks. And I said, I think this is a bullet. And I said, there's no way that's a bullet. Like, no. there's absolutely no way. Because I was like, it comes from my slaughterhouse. So I said, you know, I'll contact, we refunded them, obviously. And they weren't mad. They thought it was humorous. Uh, we contacted my supplier. And all, our, our bison comes from Alberta. And at the slaughterhouse, uh, they do use uh, 30 odd six caliber bullets. Um, no way. For their and, it was? and they and it was, and they said that it was probably a ricochet, and it got into the meat, and they credited our account. But it was just totally bizarre. <laughs> They're like, "How did this happen?" <laughs> That's wild. There's, so that was from 14 to 36. So there's there's <laughs> lots of that stuff in between. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun. I've learned a ton. If listeners want to reach out for more from you, where can they find you? Where can they get a copy of the Hunter Chef cookbook? 
Um, anywhere online at The Hunter Chef, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we have books, signed copies at the restaurant. If anyone wants to pick one up uh, with a takeout order, they're on our takeout menu online. Um, or thehunterchef.com. I've got a store there. Uh, we can ship worldwide, and those are autographed as well. So that's thehunterchef.com. It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchen confession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.